For a Christian, there is one day of the year that stands out above the rest. A day that everything changed. Then three days later, it all changed again. A time when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This season has been commemorated throughout church history. A season of remembrance. A season of drawing near. Where believers of all kinds lay down something to the feet of Jesus and reflect on the total sacrifice He gave for us. In this season, we draw near to God because He first drew near to us. Join us as we celebrate the season of Lent. Hey, just before we dive into our uh, series on uh, the subject of Lent, I want to uh, say a big thank you. I was uh, away last week speaking for one of our uh, former staff members at a church he pastors, which is always really fun to see how well uh, our great friends are doing elsewhere. But uh, I wanted to share something with you with regard to our missions program. Uh, The two weeks prior, we were involved in Experience Missions 23, and I just got a report here a couple weeks ago. The BCA ranked out of 11,000 churches 61st in the area of missions giving. Would you put your hands together? Now, 61st, you know, what does that mean? Probably uh, doesn't mean anything to anyone, but we're certainly not the 61st largest church in our uh, denomination. But I just think it's fabulous that there's so much engagement, so much commitment, so much prayer, so much devotion, people willing to pray, give, and go to help people around the world hear about Jesus Christ. So thank you for your heart of love and your commitment to the Great Commission. Today we dive into our series on Lent, and if you've been with us, we've been focusing these 40 days on drawing near to God. And we've looked at several different themes. Week number one, we talked about soul surrender. How can we totally devote our soul, our everything, to Jesus Christ? Then we talked about generous giving, and for a couple weeks about passionate purpose. And last week, Adam brought a great message on fervent fasting, and today we're going to talk about the importance of repentance. Repentance. It's so, so important. In fact, there's a definition in the dictionary that says, repentance is the act of changing your mind. I like to think of it this way. When we repent, we turn from something and turn to something. We turn from sin, we turn to God. We turn from disobedience, we turn to obedience. We turn from living for ourselves and we turn to living for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want us to talk about that for a few moments here today. We've all seen the uh, traffic sign that says wrong way. Anybody gone the wrong way in the wrong direction uh, and kind of, uh, you know, flown against the current a little bit. You know, that only works in the movies. How many have noticed that? I mean, you got these speed chases and people are going the wrong way and there's headlights coming one way and these, you know, people are trying to get away and they're swerving and of course they never ever hit anybody uh, and nobody ever gets hurt and it's just, you know, happily ever after. Uh, That doesn't work that way in real life. If you're speeding in the wrong direction, it's going to end painfully for you For the other person, you know, it's going to be a disaster. And it's true spiritually. If we continually go the wrong way and don't make a course correction and then go the right way, it's going to be a disaster. And that's what repentance is. We recognize we're going the wrong way. We turn around and begin to go the right way. Love a couple of scriptures here on repentance. It says in Acts 2 to 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you. How about a big hand for all the folks that were baptized here today? Yeah. 
So we repent. We say, Lord, forgive me. I'm a sinner. I commit my life to you. And then we're baptized, and we continue then to walk with Jesus and take further steps of discipleship, baptism being one of the very, very first and so very, very important. Look at Acts 3.19. It says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Repent then and turn to God. Repentance is a crucial part of salvation. If we pray and say, Lord, I want to follow you and serve you the rest of my life. I want to go to heaven one day. It includes repentance. We decide not to go the wrong way and we begin to go the right way. Look at uh, Matthew 3.18. Uh, actually, 3.8. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Produce fruit. In other words, my life needs to radiate the life of Jesus. Character fruit virtue fruit. I need to be fruitful in that people can look at me, they can look at you and say those people live, love, and lead like Jesus. They're sincere, they're serious about following Jesus Christ. They may not be perfect, nobody is, but boy, they are very fervent about putting Christ first in their life. And then one more, Luke 5, 21. Jesus answered them and said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come to call the, not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came to help people know that salvation was available to all if we would just repent and turn from sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a theological term called order salutis, and some of you may have heard of it, but it really is a, uh, a conversation that theologians like to have about, you know, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? You know, do you have faith first, and then you confess your sins, and then you ask for forgiveness, and then you, uh, you know, you repent, and then you're justified, and then you're regenerated, and then, you know, you're sanctified, and then there's glorification. And some of you are going, what in the world do all those words mean? Well, none of that is really important for this context right here, except to say repentance is crucial in the process of salvation. As I've said about three times already here today, we must turn from and turn to. We haven't just been saved from something. We have been saved to something, amen? We have been saved to be people of the kingdom of heaven. And repentance is a very deliberate act that I want to challenge us all to think very deeply about during this Lent series as we evaluate and contemplate, look introspectively. Are there areas of my life that I need to repent of and turn more forthrightly to Christ and follow him with all that is within me? You know, David prayed this prayer, and uh, it's a powerful prayer. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me in the way everlasting. You know, before we can understand really the importance of repentance, I think we need to understand the, the gravity of sin. There's a downward spiral that the Bible teaches us about sin and temptation and disobedience. You know, the Bible says in Genesis chapter, uh, you know, first few chapters, it talks about how God created man. And it was good until it wasn't. Man sinned in Genesis chapter 3, and everything went to, to pot. Everything. They were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Sin entered the world. Uh, there was all sorts of pain and problems that resulted. And I have to chuckle sometimes when people say, man, that Adam and Eve, why did they do that? If they wouldn't have done that, we'd be living in paradise today. 
Anybody here ever sinned? Let me see your hand. Anybody sinned? They were the first, but friends, we've all done it after them. So, you know, it was going to happen. And uh, of course it would happen with the first because there's no perfect man. Um, we're all sinners. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You are a part of one big support group. Look around and say, hey, it's great to be with you fellow sinners here today. We are all a bunch of sinners, but we have the opportunity to be saved by grace, amen, and our sins to be forgiven, and we can go to heaven, but we're sinners. And the Bible talks about the downward spiral and the, the, the downward gravity pull of sin. Um, a... Uh, think of so many scriptures in the Bible that speak about this, and I want to I highlight a few of them here today. As we look at this next section, what do we know about temptation, disobedience, and sin? You know, the Bible says over and over again that man is a sinner, and we see example after example, David, and Ananias, and Sapphira, and Samson, and Achan, and, and uh, you know, Noah, and on and on it goes throughout the Bible. Everybody sins except one man, and that's Jesus. Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, and yet he never ever sinned. So what can we learn about how he resisted and overcame temptation? How can we apply that to our own life? And what else can we learn about what the Bible says about sin, temptation, disobedience? Well, let me, just, let me hit just a couple of, of highlights before we come back and talk about repentance as we wrap things up later in the service. The Bible says that we can win over temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. I don't know that we think as much as we should about the way out part. Now, none of us are going to be perfect, but neither do we have to live life to see how imperfect we can be, amen? None of us are gonna obey all the time, but we don't have to disobey all the time either. How can we grow, mature, become more and more like Jesus Christ? How can we gain that spiritual muscle through spiritual disciplines and be able to stand tall when temptation bombards us? The Bible says the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in me so I can overcome sin. I can overcome temptation. I don't have to be sucker punched by the devil and disobey at every turn. The second thing the Bible teaches is I can lose. How many already like the first point better? I can lose. Genesis chapter 3, we just alluded to it a minute ago. We see that Satan comes on the scene and what does he say? He says, woman, what did God say to you? Oh, don't listen to God. He didn't mean it. He's just fooling with you. He's just funning with you. He's a trickster. He's a jokester. That God, oh, no, he didn't mean any of it. Verse 4, Satan says, you're not going to die. Oh, that's not true. Oh, and by the way, God only told you not to eat of the forbidden fruit, you know, at the center of the garden, because he doesn't want you to be as smart as him. He doesn't want your eyes to be open. He doesn't want you to be like God. And, Satan, uh, and, and uh, Eve said to herself, you know what? Satan's right. He's right. I believe him. It says here, she saw the tree was good for fruit. It was pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. And so she took some and ate it. And she gave some to Adam and he ate it. We read it that way and we go, how facetious, how foolish. We would never say, you know, Satan's right. 
Who of us in our right mind would ever say that? And yet when we choose to disobey, when we choose to go the wrong way, deliberately, that's basically what we're saying. You know, Satan's right. Let's do it that way. Forget God's way. And for a moment, a lapse of spiritual judgment, we lose our way, and we basically say, God's way is not the best way. We can lose. We don't have to, but we can lose. But we can overcome. In Matthew chapter 4, we come to one of the great, great passages in the Bible where Jesus, for 40 days and 40 nights, is fasting and praying out in the wilderness. Remember that story? And uh, Adam did a great job last week talking about fasting, and this is a great scripture talking about Jesus praying and fasting in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. There's a lot of different passages in the Bible that talk about the number 40. This is one of them. Uh, We're practicing Lent for 40 days, and we could go on and on. 40 is a significant number. And Jesus is out in the wilderness, and he's fasting. And Satan comes on the scene, and he begins to tempt him. And he says, hey, turn these stones into bread. That was the first temptation. And you got to understand that Jesus would have been famished. He would have been hungry. And what William Barclay says in his commentary is that the limestone out in the desert region where Jesus would have been, those limestone, those rocks, look like little loaves of bread. I thought that was fascinating. So Jesus is looking at the stones going, maybe that's not a stone. Maybe that's a piece of bread. Maybe I should start chewing on it. You know, he's tempted. It's a very real temptation. It's a powerful temptation. But what did Jesus say? Man does not live by bread alone. I'm not going to let you, Satan, short-circuit this season right now that I'm enjoying of spiritual, earnest prayer and fasting. I am connecting with my Father in a very profound way, and I'm not going to abort the mission for just a little bit of bread. But Satan wouldn't give up. He goes to the second temptation. And what does he say? Hey, go up to kind of the pinnacle of the temple. There's a, there's a place on the, uh, the outer wall of, of the temple, temple area between the uh, royal porch and the Solomon porch where there's about a 450-foot drop to uh, the Kidron Valley below. Imagine that. And so Satan's saying, hey, Jesus, go on up there and do like a triple backflip. Pop off of there with everybody looking and then just float down, have a few angels catch you. It's going to be Sensational. Talk about a production. But Jesus says, I didn't come here for the sensational. I came to earth for the salvation of all who would believe. I didn't come to do a lot of sensational things. You know, humankind are drawn to the sensational. Even people in churches and spiritual people are drawn to the sensational. May I encourage you to be drawn to the real Jesus. Be drawn to the master. Be drawn to Jesus. And Jesus says, I am going to invite people to come to me and they're going to see the love of the Father through me and I'm going to die on the cross for the sins of others so that they can put their faith in me and have everlasting life. I am doing no backflips. I'm not going to do it. That's not part of the plan. Don't test God. He says it's written. It's written. At every temptation, he says it's written, he used the word of God as a sword of the spirit to slice and dice away the falsehoods and lies of of Satan. And then there's one more. Satan comes on the scene and says, hey, 
let me take you to this high up place. Look at all of these nations. I will give you the nations of the world. And he, he uses an Old Testament passage in a wrong way to try to trick Jesus. And Jesus said, worship God only. I'm not interested. I'm not going to compromise. I'm not going to wink at evil. I'm not going to go the wrong way. I'm not going to disobey. I'm on a mission for the salvation of the world. It's a powerful passage of Scripture. Jesus overcame the temptation of Satan. And friends, get this. We too can overcome. We do not have to be duped, sucker punched, beat up, pounded on at every turn by the deceiver, the father of lies, Satan. We can overcome the very power. I mean, this is a great verse to talk about Easter season. The very power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in me, Paul says in the book of Romans. And I either believe that or I don't, and I believe it with all my heart. Doesn't mean I'm going to be perfect. Doesn't mean I'm not going to disobey. Doesn't mean I'm not going to go the wrong way once in a while. But I want to do that less and less. And when I do, I'm going to be quick to say, Lord, I confess my sins. I repent. I turn back to the right way. God, give me spiritual strength and muscle to live a godly, holy life. The next thing is we have a choice. In 1 John 2, 15 to 17, it says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For anything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of the eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. I have a choice. I can live for the world or I can live for Christ. I can follow the kingdom values of this world or the kingdom values of the kingdom of heaven. I have a choice. None of us should walk out of this place saying, you know, I'm on a treadmill, I'm on a, a rail, and it's just going to take me wherever it takes me, and I don't have a choice. No, we all have a choice. At every turn, every day, every moment, we can choose to obey or disobey. And we have the power through Christ to make the right choice. We have a choice. It's important for me to understand how sin works, how Satan uses sin to manipulate and beguile us. And I don't know if you've thought about this recently, but I think it's important to understand sin's pathways. As you see on this next slide, you see Genesis, Matthew, and 1 John, the verses we just talked about, all talk about the same three pathways of sin. In fact, I believe that you can take every sin imaginable and put it in one of the three categories listed on the left. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. It's interesting to me at the beginning of the Bible, in the middle of the Bible, at the end of the Bible, the first man, Adam, the second man, as the Bible says, Jesus, and us men and women today in 1 John, we all are impacted and affected by the same three gateways or pathways of sin. The lust of the flesh, you know, the, the, the carnal appetite of our fleshly nature. Lust of the eyes, you know, the things that we covet and want with our eyes. Pride of life, you know, all that is uh, hubris and, and arrogant and prideful and narcissistic. I mean, you could more than likely place every sin you can imagine in one of those three categories. And the Bible talks about it over and over again. These phrases you see are the very phrases in those passages. Good for food, stones to bread, craving the sinful man, pleasing to the eyes, splendor of the world, lust of his eyes, desirable for gaining wisdom, throw yourself down, boasting of what he has and does. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. 
Every single one of us are tempted. Every single one of us. You, me, everybody. And we will fall from time to time and we need to immediately rush before the Lord and say, forgive me, I confess my sin. Forgive me, I repent. God, I do not want to stay in this place. I want to get back on the right road. We need to be earnest and fervent, vigilant about that approach in our faith. Don't continue habitual sin. It becomes a, like a callus on your hand. Over time, you become insensitive to that sin and it becomes okay Shoot high for holiness. Shoot high for purity. First Peter says, be holy. God says, be holy as I am holy. Shoot high for holiness. One more thought before we jump back to focusing on repentance. We need to know sin's aim. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire, they're enticed. Then after desire has conceived and gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Notice kind of a downward progression here. Take a look at this visual on the very next slide. We're tempted, we're dragged away, we're enticed. You know, we're looking at whatever that sin is. We desire it, we're desiring it, and then finally, boom, we commit the sin, and it's destructive. If not physical death, it's death of a relationship, death of, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, let's take something kind of simple, you know. Um, in fact, look at the next slide. We've got a goldfish looking at a hook. How many understand the uh, prognosis here? Let's go ahead to the next slide if we can. Um, imagine a nice full, big, large, moving worm on that hook. And that fish is looking at that worm, saying, I want the worm. I can taste the worm. I like the looks of that worm. I can smell the worm. I can almost taste the worm. Now I can because I just bit the worm and now I have a hook in my mouth, and now I'm going to die. <laughs> That's the progression, you know, for the fish. And for us spiritually, we have the tendency, especially in this day and age, to wink at sin, to be too willing to compromise, to say, well, it's not that big a deal, or to say, God's a God of grace, he'll always forgive me. But what we don't understand is that sin is destructive of people and their relationships. It's harmful, it's hurtful. And we need to shoot higher than mediocre spirituality. Those are some key scriptures that I think of often when I think of temptation and disobedience and sin. It's real, it's potent, it's damaging, it's difficult, but I don't have to be sucker punched at every turn by Satan, I can overcome. And when I do fall, the Bible says, if I confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive me of all my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. How many can say amen to that? How many are thankful for God's forgiveness? But I've got to confess my sins. I've got to repent and turn. And this brings us back to the very first passage we looked at in the book of James. James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. James gives us five points, if you will, about what it means to repent. 
Let me just highlight it here. Submit yourself, resist the devil, come near to God, wash your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Look in this next slide at these action words. It says in, the, in this book of James, it says turn from sin. It says wash your hands, purify your hearts. Okay, you've been living in sin, now turn and go the other way. If you're here within the sound of my voice online or in person and you have not committed your life to Christ, today is your day to repent, turn from sin and turn to God. Or maybe you're here and you say, you know, Rob, I've known the Lord in the past, but I've kind of strayed. Today is the day for you to come back home. There's no more powerful, positive message in the world. Jesus wants to welcome you home. Stop going the wrong way, go the right way. Turn from sin and turn to God. Acknowledge sin's devastation. It says grieve, mourn, wail, change your laughter to mourning. Understand the egregious nature of sin, the devastating nature, the depravity, the gravity of sin. It pulls you down, down, down. It's destructive. It's hurtful. The Beatitude says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who know the devastation and evil nature of sin and how destructive it is. And then drive out hubris with humility. You know, humility is so important in all of this. We need to recognize that we are drowning in an ocean of sin and we need someone to throw us a lifeline. And God says, here it comes. His name is Jesus. Take a hold of him with all that you have and never, ever let go. That is the core message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Eliminate compromise. The Bible says resist the devil. Resist the devil. Jesus says it is written, it is written, it is written. At every turn, he resisted the devil, and so must we as we follow his example. And then turn to God with willful, willful obedience. Submit. Come near. Those are the words that James uses. I just finished reading a short little book of 700 pages on the Crusades. How many now know Rob is crazy? It took me a long time. Um, after I was done, I texted my three boys and I said, I now know one-third as much as you guys do about the Crusades. They're kind of history buffs. I think I missed that class in high school. Um, you know, none of it really resonated except for Richard the Lionheart and Saladin and a few people. But one of the things that jumped out to me, and many of you history buffs will know this, but, you know, as Christendom took on Islam in the Crusades, you know, Christians were challenged to go to war, to fight a holy war, and if they did, they would earn salvation for themselves and their family. It was a salvation of works. The Bible says it doesn't work that way. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, not of works. It is a gift of God. Salvation is available to us free. And really through that bad teaching, the story of indulgences began to seep in to the church of the, you know, 10th, 11th, 12th centuries. And people could pay a sum of money to the church and they could buy salvation for themselves, buy salvation for their family, and even buy salvation for the dead. None of that's in the Bible. We know that. But I share that story just to share this. 
while salvation is free, we all must choose repentance. We can say, hey, it's great, salvation is free, no big deal, okay, that's good, that's wonderful, that's awesome, and do nothing about it. Or we can say, I want to spend the rest of my life in heaven. I want to go to heaven. I'm going to repent of my sin, stop going the wrong way, and start going the right way. And I don't know who I'm talking to here today, but I know that there are many within the sound of my voice that you're just kind of on you know, the hamster wheel going through life, but you need to make a decision like right now, like here today. I am making a decision. I am choosing to follow Jesus. I'm going to put him first in my life. I want the rest of my life to be the best of my life. I want to go to heaven one day, and I'm not going to spin my wheels anymore. Does that make sense? I want to choose Jesus, and I want to follow him, and I want to go to heaven one day. There's a prayer tucked in Psalm 51 that is perhaps the greatest prayer on repentance anywhere in the Bible. It's the prayer of David after committing adultery with Bathsheba and literally murdering her husband by putting him on the front lines. David was a holy man, and then he wasn't. I mean, he committed two of the big ten. How many have read the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery. You know, we like to say that all sins are kind of the same. Well, if, if you're in the big ten like this guy, that's not good. Let's at least put it that way. But to his credit, when Nathan the prophet came and accosted him, he stopped, reflected, thought, and repented. And this is what he prayed. Look at the next slide. He prayed a prayer of confession. Have mercy on me, O God. As sincere and real as you could be. God, have mercy on me. A prayer of forgiveness. Cleanse me. I am a dirty, rotten sinner. What I have done is egregious and terrible. Forgive me. Friends, we need to call sin what it is. It is terrible. It is disastrous. It is evil. It is wicked. A prayer of humility. I know my transgressions. I did this. No one did this to me. I did this. This is on me. A prayer of brokenness. David prayed, God, I know you want people with a broken and contrite spirit. I am broken. I am shattered. I am nothing. A prayer of obedience. You desire faithfulness. Lord, I want to be faithful from this day forward. I have blown it in the past, but from this point forward. Now, friends, that is a great challenge to every one of us. From this day forward, no matter what we've done in the past, we give it all to the Lord. We say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, deliver me. God, set me free. Cleanse me from this day forward. A prayer of restoration created me a pure heart. Create me a pure heart, O oh God. Create me a right spirit. And a prayer to turn. From this time on, Lord, I want to sing of your righteousness. I want to declare your praises. This from a man who knew God well and then blew it all, but rebounded. Isn't that one of the most powerful messages of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we can have a second chance? David is known as a man after God's own heart, not because he committed murder, obviously, not because he committed adultery, obviously, but because he humbly and authentically 
poured out his heart to God in confession and repentance and said, Lord, I have blown it more than any other man. Forgive me and help me. I want to repent and I want to start going the right way. It's a powerful passage, a powerful story. How about you and me today? Where do we need to be honest with God about ourselves and our spiritual journey? Where do we need to repent, resist the devil, and turn to Christ? Are we totally committed to following Jesus? Or is it a matter of spiritual convenience? When we want a little religion, yes. When we don't, not so much. How serious are we? Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Are we truly committed to following him in discipleship with all that we have? Have I made Jesus the center of my life? It's my number one aim and, and, and passion to live, to love, to lead like Jesus, to be the person he's called me to be. Have I truly made Jesus the center of every, every area of my life? A couple of days ago, we celebrated St. Patrick's Day. And for many people, it's a day to wear green and drink and party and uh, all that goes with that. But uh, St. Patrick's become a really predominant person in my thought these last several years. Some of you know the story where he was kidnapped at about age 16 and taken from Roman Britain to Ireland. And he was kidnapped and he worked with sheep as a sheep herder for about six years and then he escaped and he made his way back to England, Britain. And while there he heard from God, he encountered, actually while he was a shepherd, he encountered God he came back home, he uh, entered the priesthood and heard God give him a Macedonian call to go back to Ireland to minister to the people where he had been kidnapped. And so he went. And, you know, the Church of England uh, said nobody in Ireland can even remotely find God. They're barbarians out there. They're not reachable. Don't even try. It's worthless. But God had called St. Patrick to go, and he went. And after a 28-year mission, thousands of people were saved. Thousands of people were baptized. 700 churches were planted. 50, about, about 50 of the 150 tribes became mostly Christian. About 1,000 ministers were ordained. And on and on it goes because he was willing to go and preach the gospel of repentance and salvation. They go together. We must repent of our sin, turn from, and turn to. And then he offered these words that you see on the screen as really kind of the vision statement, modus operandi of his life. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I raise up, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. You think Jesus 
was kind of important to St. Patrick. There was nothing more important in the whole world. I want to encourage you to bow your heads with me. I want you to close your eyes. And I want you just to think for a moment as we close the service. Is Jesus the center of my life? Are there areas that I need to confess, repent, and turn to him? Are there sinful habits? Are there sinful actions? Are there relationships that I need to seek forgiveness for? Where do I need to turn from and turn to? Where in my life am I going the wrong way and need to go the right way? Where am I compromising with disobedience where I need to live a life of obedience? With every head bowed and every eye closed and everyone just praying, would you just simply pray to the Lord, Lord, I commit my life to you. I want to put you first in my life. Forgive me of my sin. I repent. I turn from. I turn to. Maybe you're here and you would say, Pastor Rob, either in person in the service or any other services online, you'd say, Pastor Rob, I've known the Lord in the past, but I've slipped away. May I invite you and encourage you to recommit your life to Jesus right now? Maybe you're within the sound of my voice, either present or online, and you'd say, you know, I never really have committed my life to Christ, but I want to go to heaven. I want to go the right way. I want to stop going the wrong way. Would you just simply pray, Lord, come into my life, forgive me my sins, I want to follow you. And if you do, would you fill out that connection card? I want to be praying for you this week. Our team wants to pray for you this week. There's one online, there's one here present before you. Drop it in the black box on the back wall as you leave. Lord, I pray your blessing on every one of us. We want to be holy, we want to be righteous. We'll never be perfect, but God, we want to follow you. We need your strength to help us follow you more and more and more faithfully and completely. I pray your blessing on everybody that's here today. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Let's stand. We're going to sing a closing song. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come forward. Our chapel and online host pastors will lead the rest of our service. But let's sing together. And I invite you to step out for prayer if you'd like special prayer here today. Let's sing together.